Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg. Today we're talking about where we are with global warming and climate changes and what concerns we should have. We do this program about every year, usually about this time, uh, coinciding with the annual UN Climate Summit. We have two guests joining us, both by Zoom. Matthew Huber is the David E. Ross Director of the Institute for a Sustainable Future for Purdue University. And Ben Kravitz is Professor of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Indiana University here in Bloomington. You can join us on the program by giving us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter uh, now called X at Noon Edition. So thank you both for being here, Matthew and Ben. And I want to start with kind of a general question. You know, the, the timing of this show coincides with the UN Climate Summit in Dubai. And I want to turn to Ben first and then get, get Matt's um, perspective. But uh, how important are summits like this UN Summit? And, you know, did anything get done this year? Yeah, um, thanks for having us. Um, so I I tend to take sort of a middle of the road approach to the COP. I it's one of those things where I wouldn't necessarily expect anything to happen as such, but the fact that they're doing it, they're getting people from all over the world talking about climate change and what to do about it, I think is really motivating. Matt. Yeah, well what this is COP28, so um, this process of getting together to discuss things has gone on for uh, many years now. And, you know, interesting things have happened with the COPs over the years. Sometimes there's been major surprises, and in some years it's been kind of um, just kicking the can down the road. This is a an interesting year, kind of especially interesting to me, because this is to my mind, the first time that um, the effective, effectiveness of the COPs has kind of really been fundamentally challenged um, in the sense that uh, it's in Dubai, the person in charge of it is very much uh, uh, diet in the wool, fossil fuels person. And from my perspective, the effectiveness of, of the COP process is being intentionally undermined by the fossil fuel industry. Um, and we're kind of seeing the, the beginning of, of a strong reaction by them to the process because the process has been effective. So of course it should be undermined. Um, and that seems to be what's going on this year. Yeah, if I can follow up on that, I mean, I think uh, some of the new, well, I was following it in the news and some of what I had been hearing in news stories was how um, the person who was leading the conference talked about, and I, I don't know his name, I'm sorry, but he was talking about the um, the need to include fossil fuels in the solution and a lot of other people pushing back and saying fossil fuels have to be eliminated. They can't be part of the solution. Um, where, where do you guys land on that? Ben? Um. So it's a question of when, I would say. I mean, if we eliminated all fossil fuels tomorrow, that would probably cause a lot of suffering. Um, if we took 200 years to eliminate all fossil fuels, that would probably cause a lot of suffering too. Um, so I I mean, it, it's, I, I think his statement was kind of 
vague in that sense. Um, I what what kind of surprised me about the statements he's been making is I, you'd think the president of the COP would be a little more careful in speaking. Um, I just thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Matthew. Yeah, I, I mean, he um, made some statements about essentially the the impossibility of of um, of, of moving ahead uh, without relying to a large degree, in a continuing sense, on on fossil fuels, um, and and I think uh, there was a big hullabaloo about that. I think some of it may have been taken out of context uh, and and slightly overblown. Um, you know, sometimes it's hard to be precise. But on the other hand, as uh, the kind of president of the COP, we would expect him to be extremely on message and very much aware of the context and implications of his words. Um, so the fact that he seems to be shooting from the hip at times is uh, problematic, or alternatively, it's quite intentional, um, and he's trying to to rile things up. But the, the reality is, you know, as Ben said, if we were to just remove fossil fuels from the energy mix today, there would be global suffering, right? You know, so, so that's that's not something that anybody is discussing. It's just let's just turn it all off right now. Um, but we do need to transition away from fossil fuels starting immediately, ideally 20 years ago. So that transition absolutely has to be ongoing and starting uh, some time ago. And we do need to transition rather rapidly to an energy mix that is much less reliant on fossil fuels. And in fact, uh, eventually we need to be sucking carbon down from the atmosphere. Well, I want to ask a question about something that I had no idea about until we were chatting before the show. But both of you, you said both of you are going to uh, your biggest conference uh, in the next couple of weeks. And I wanted to know, you know, what that conference is all about. And, you know, does climate change have a big role in the discussions at, at that meeting? Uh, ben, you want to go first? Um, yeah, I mean, so this this is uh starts next week i'm flying out sunday um and this is the biggest um geosciences meeting i think in the world um we're probably going to get somewhere between 25 and 30,000 people in attendance um and it covers every aspect of geoscience um tectonics atmospheric electricity um biogeosciences and there's a huge portion of it that focuses on climate change from a variety of aspects. So um, what does climate change look like from different perspectives? How much is being experienced and how much are we going to experience? What does that mean? So there's a whole geo health section, for example. And what do we do about it and what are the consequences? So there are people coming from all over the world to present their research and discuss. Um, and, I'm really and, looking forward to seeing a lot of my friends. Yeah, and let, let me follow up with you on that. I mean, what are what are a couple of topics that maybe we don't think about, people who, you know, who aren't geoscientists don't think about that you're really looking forward to digging into at that conference in relation to climate change? Um, so I'm looking forward to the, the number of sessions varies every year. So I, I'll be talking in a session about climate engineering. Um, I'm interested in some sessions on vector-borne disease. There are some sections on uh, artificial intelligence and how to incorporate that into climate modeling. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. a lot. Okay. All right. Matthew, similar questions for you. I mean, what are you looking forward to about this conference? Yeah, well, so, you know, as a, as a starting point, it is a very big meeting, a huge tent, and, and climate change is an important part of it. But it is it is so broad and it covers uh, an array of topics that, that really indicate the, um, the the vibrance of the field as a whole of geoscience, space science, atmosphere, ocean science, and their interactions with the biosphere and public policy and communities. Um, so it's just a very exciting meeting. Uh, some of us uh, are always a little bit concerned about our carbon footprint, and uh, there are many people who try not to fly there, and they choose alternative measure uh, ways of uh, 
of arriving, you know, via, via train or perhaps zooming in. Um, I myself have cut back on attending that meeting for that reason. Um, and uh, so only go every other year or every three years, but it, it's a really exciting time. And the key thing is you're bringing in people from all around the world with very different perspectives. And personally, I'm uh, most interested, I think, in um, sessions uh, that align with my research interests, so on past climate. So my research area has been historically, how has climate changed uh, over the past 65 million years? Uh, and so there's gonna be a lot of sessions just on what you might think of as perfectly natural climate change and the history of it. Um, and also uh, thinking about the future, I am uh, participating, my students and my postdocs are participating in sessions having to do on heat waves and how heat waves will affect humans in terms of their health and their ability to do work. All right. I want to give our uh, contact information. If you want to join us and talk about climate change with two uh, geoscientists geoscient here on uh, Noon Edition today, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. So I want to follow up with both of you about some of your specialties. So um, Matthew, you know, we, we do hear a lot in the political arena about, I, I do think, I hope, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that consensus is now that climate change is real and it's man-made. Um, but I, but there still is a lot of discussion about how, uh, you know, you talked about the historical, your historical perspective, uh, over a really long period of time on natural climate change, how how much different is what we're facing now than what um, you've seen in history? Yeah, thanks. Uh, that's a great question. So um, I've explored climate change uh, over 65 million years, going you know really from right after the dinosaurs died all the way through to today. And what we find by studying past climates is that the main driver of climate change through that whole period has been changes in atmospheric greenhouse gas concentrations. So CO2, perhaps also some methane. And we used to have a world 55 million years ago that was much, much warmer. And there was no ice on Greenland and no ice in Antarctica. And it was reductions in carbon dioxide concentrations that caused the uh, uh, Antarctica to glaciate about 35 million years ago, and then uh, Greenland to glaciate about three and a half million years ago. So the amazing thing is that you can study the past to recognize what kind of major knobs that you can tune climate with, and CO2 ends up being the, the biggest knob that we know about. And from my perspective, um, it's very important to compare the same climate models that we use to project the future with uh, and, and instead project into the past and validate the models and their ability to reproduce past changes. And they do a pretty good job. Um, we get all the major climate transitions right, but um, we have tended to find that climate models underpredict past climate changes. So we have to add more CO2 than uh, is suggested by uh, paleoclimate records to get the right kind of temperature change. So uh, that kind of underpins a lot of future climate modeling that we have all this data from the past and we have a pretty good understanding of it and an ability to model the past. All right, and Ben, I wanted to ask you about um, climate engineering. I, that was a term that was kind of new to me. Um, you study it. What What is it? And is this part of the solution? Yeah. Um, so climate change is pretty scary and it's causing a lot of problems. And the, the permanent solution to that is we need to stop putting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Um, that is a slow and expensive prospect. And um, if you look at what we've done so far, We've made some progress, but not sufficient. And so what are we going to do in the meantime? Are we just going to suffer the consequences while we get our act together? And some people have talked about the idea of 
could we deliberately modify the climate, keeping temperatures down to give us some time to ramp up those more permanent solutions? And that's what we call climate engineering. So one of the ideas, we know large volcanic eruptions in the past put a bunch of stuff in the atmosphere. One of the things they put up there is sulfur. As it turns out, sulfur, when you put it way up high in the atmosphere, is really bright. It reflects a small portion of sunlight back to space, and that cools the planet. And so people have thought, well, is there a way that we could do that on purpose? And more importantly, is that a good idea? Mm-hmm. Is it a good idea? <laughs> well, I, I don't. <laughs> that That's a really hard question to answer. Um, and... Uh, I would say at this point, we don't know. Um, So if the idea of putting a bunch of sulfur up in the atmosphere scares you, good, it should. But climate change is really scary too. Um, And so what we need to do, and a lot of the research that I do, is looking at what are the risks of doing this and what are the risks of not doing it so that the decision makers can figure out the best path forward. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, we have a couple questions that um, our, our producer did a, an interview with, with Gabe Filippelli um, not too long ago, and there were a couple of pe- questions that uh, he's passed along to me. Um, he said it's not too late. You know, we can still set ourselves on the right path. That's what Gabe said. Um, is this true, do you think? Or if so, how much time do we have to get ourselves on a, a different trajectory when it comes to climate change? Matthew, you want to start? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, the the not too late question is is a really important one, and it and it really boils down to is not not too late for what? Mm-hmm. Um, so, in my opinion, and this is where I differ from some of my colleagues, I think one and a half degrees of of warming is is basically uh, guaranteed at this point. So it's probably too late for avoiding. Uh, one and a half. I think that we are on track for at least two degrees of warming. Um, and the center of, of likely futures uh, lies more around three degrees of warming. So it is definitely not too late to prevent three degrees or more. I think I think it's a matter of, of active debate whether we can still prevent two degrees. But we can definitely still prevent three degrees of warming or more. And, and, what, yeah, what, and I what, think that the, the, the positive ahead. implications of that are, are huge. So there would be huge benefit if we can keep it, say, between two and a little bit more than two. Yeah. I mean, what kind of benefit? You know, we're talking about, you know, one degree doesn't seem like that much to, uh, you know, like between 70 degrees and 71 degrees outside. But I assume that as an average over time, that's quite a lot. Yeah. And, and I think um, the the impacts uh, due to global warming are, are sometimes a little difficult to understand because we use words like one degree of global mean surface temperature change, which yeah. nobody experiences the global mean value. It's very confusing. People, you know, it's, it's, it's shorthand, right? So it's shorthand for a lot of things that change as the, uh, the global mean temperature changes. So between two and three, you see massive incre- increases in the negative impacts of climate change. So in between killing the coral reefs, putting parts of the rainforest in substantial danger, leading to, uh, there's, there's also projected massive increases in heat waves and heat stress, wildfires. It's it's really as you go from two up to three that there's this exponential increase in all of the really negative things having to do with climate change. Okay. Um, could you talk a little bit about your work at the at the center at Purdue? I mean, what what is your what is your goal? What does a sustainable future look like for uh, for Indiana in particular? Absolutely. So. Uh, I've been at Purdue uh, for 20 years, and I was a co-founder of the Purdue Climate Change Research Center and a one-time director uh, that existed here for many years. Um, And recently, we transitioned uh, by merging the Center for the Environment and the Purdue Climate Change Research Center into an institute for a sustainable future. And and I think that merger and and reframing really goes along with the, the recognition globally that 
it's all well and good to talk about all of our problems, but at some point we have to deliver solutions that operate on, on you know, in the real world, and that nothing need nothing can be thought of in uh, isolation. So you can't think about climate change without thinking about energy and thinking about economics and thinking about environmental justice. And so sustainability is really the right framing for conceptualizing the future. And and specifically, we focus on the. Uh, SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, which include a wide range of um, different factors. And so that's what we're trying to do. We we bring together um, research across the university, so in engineering, in, in agriculture, in science, in health sciences, you know, in a whole variety of areas. And we're trying to pull together teams to deliver solutions for the grand challenge problems in sustainability moving forward. Ben, Indiana University uh, was involved in, you know, we have, a, we have a center here, right, and um, has been involved in this. How, you know, how well is IU doing, do you think, in, in uh, doing the, the research and looking for solutions to help? I know a lot of it was about helping to figure out um, how we could be sustainable for the state of Indiana and solutions for Indiana. But I just am I'm looking for a you know, your your judgment on how well the university is doing. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I can talk about is the Environmental Resilience Institute, mm -hmm. which was stood up um, a few years before COVID. Well, the past few years are kind of a blur for me. Um, but the, the goal of that is to figure out sort of on the ground solutions. What can communities do? Because, you know, in Indiana, we have a lot of rural communities. They're not exactly rich. They can't go out and just like replace all of their buildings with uh, net zero carbon buildings. And so what can they do? Um, and we have a program that we run down here through the Institute um, called the McKinney Climate Fellows, where we will take students who are um, uh, well-versed in environmental science and we'll actually embed them in different communities um, uh, so that's effectively an internship and they help those communities design solutions, they help them apply for funding um, to implement those solutions. And um, so what we're really trying to get at is where are these communities and what can they do with the resources they have or how can they get more resources? Gotcha, okay. If you want to join us on the program today, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Um, both of you work on college campuses. I want to know from you how, how much um, awareness is there among the students that you deal with? And I know you're probably dealing with science students, so they're, they're, I would think they would be sort of self-selected. But do you um, see where do you see climate change? fitting into the uh, the issues of students on the IU and Purdue campuses. Matthew? So I, uh, in addition to being director, I'm also uh, the uh, professor for Intro to Atmospheric Science, EAPS 117. Um, so I have 36 students, some of which are atmospheric science undergrads, uh, but actually there's a variety of people. And they all care about climate change to one degree or another. And they also, you know, maybe more broadly care about um, as solutions to climate change and, and related environmental issues are deployed. What does that mean for their careers? What does that mean for their lives? And I also teach courses that are not for science students, that they're all over campus and we have uh, political scientists and sociologists and people in communications. And I, and I can say that basically every one of them is really strongly motivated, you know, each according to their own personal history and their own value system, but they're all very motivated to try and make the world a better place as, as part of what they do with their degree and after they graduate. And that's a great feeling being director of an of a institute that's all about trying to make the world a better place in the long term. 
is it really taps into the values of, of the students coming out of these programs, really across all of them at Purdue. Mm -hmm. Ben? Yeah, um, so I teach uh, a climate change science class, and the, the first day I do sort of a pretest because you know, we live in Southern Indiana. You'd never quite know who's going to be in the classroom. And so I, I asked them um, if they're concerned about climate change, why? Or if they're not worried about climate change at all, why? Or if they don't know anything about climate change, what do they want to learn from this class? Just sort of get a feel for who I have in the room. Um, uh, all of my students, all of them, turn something in basically saying, we're despondent about climate change. We don't even know why we're getting a degree because we're all going to be dead in 20 years. So I've had to revamp the entire class to spend a huge amount of time on hope and all of the things that people are doing. Um, so my students care a whole lot. And yeah, it may be self-selecting, but I actually don't think so. Um, so recently, um, there was a proposal that was led by the student government to add a general education component in sustainability. Um, I've never heard of students wanting to add general education components before, but they think sustainability is so important that they want to make sure every student on campus is taking uh, at least a class or two on it. So um, I'm very hopeful about how I use uh, the students at IU care about climate change and what they want to do about it. You know, that's really that that was not quite the answer I was expecting. But, you know, the fact that we're finding hope and people being despondent is kind of an interesting, uh, you know, way to look at it. But I see exactly exactly what you're saying. You know, with with the fact that we have a whole generation of people, as as you said, who are somewhere between caring a whole lot and worrying about whether they're going to have a planet or not and being downright despondent about it. Why can't we make any more progress in terms of, you know, the national will to – and I know this is a really difficult, big and difficult question, but I'm just trying to see where the disconnect is between a generation of people that really see that this is a, uh, a massive, massive problem and maybe another generation or two generations that don't seem to be, uh, as you said, I think one of, one of you said earlier, there's a lot of talk about it, but not as much action. Where's the disconnect? Um, I have some thoughts about that. I mean, so I'm not, a, I'm not a political economist or anything resembling that. But if you look at what the current generation of students, so Gen Z and to some extent millennials, uh, my generation, are talking about, there's a lot of railing against late stage capitalism and getting money out of politics and special interests um, that I don't think we saw on a, such a massive scale before. So I think there's just sort of a different attitude and a desire to upend the way things have been happening for years. And so I, I see those changes happening, it's just, you know, it's going to take a little while. Mm -hmm. Matthew, I, I would say yeah, Purdue students are are very different. Um, we we skew more uh, conservative and more quantitative, uh, and I find very little despondency among uh, the students that I interact with. So they they're much more interested in uh, and focused on. Okay, well, if there's going to be more flooding, can we build more dams? And how do we build more dams? I love um, engineers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that's a that's a perhaps a an oversimplification, both on my part and and perhaps on theirs. Um, but but uh, I think it is illustrative of the fact that if you show people how they can make a difference, and this and this gets to Ben's point as well. You know, if you show people that they really can make a difference, and you provide them with adequate mechanisms to do so, not not purely performative things, right? You know, you're not going to make a difference. Oh, we have a better recycling program on campus. I mean, frankly, that's not going to solve the world's problems. Um, so, but if you show them exactly how they really can make a difference, and um, in one of the things that I do, I just did it on the last day of class I had yesterday, 
was explain to them that the world really is deploying solutions or at least trying to, right? You know, the $600 billion worth of funding moving through the federal system currently on deploying solutions uh, as part of the Inflation Reduction and CHIPS Act. So it's not like nothing is happening. A huge amount is happening, but there are some disconnects. Uh, the left hand doesn't necessarily know what the right hand is doing. So we, we have to we have to kind of move uh, everyone into some synchronization on this. Ben, you know, you, you mentioned uh, the Environmental Resilience Institute. And just to, you know, to revisit that, I mean, that was part of what that whole grand challenge was about, too, and trying to figure out, you know, solutions and, and ways that um, – we could address these issues that we knew were were coming at us. What what are a couple of the things that you think came out of that have come out of that? Um, well, for one, me, I was a grand challenge hire, um, <laughs> but it it was really neat to um, see. I, I'm not going to call it a cluster hire because it wasn't exactly, but bringing in a cohort of people all within a few years and. Uh, all of the research that we're all doing and all of the classes that we're teaching, it basically jumpstarts a community of people who are all working on the same thing, but from a different angle. So um, I'm, I got involved in social science. I'm kind of the token climate modeler, thanks to this group of people where we're trying to figure out... Um, where is that disconnect? So we talk to a lot of experts in climate change and ask them, what do you think the solution space looks like? Um, and then we're looking at, is that realistic? So, um, and I never would have done that sort of work if we didn't have the grand challenge. Mm -hmm. Both of you have, have talked about this a little bit, but it, it seems like Matthew at your institute and in the Environmental Resilience Institute on IU's campus as well, there was a there was a big um, effort to get a whole lot of different disciplines involved in this discussion. Uh, why is that important? Matthew? Matthew, you want to take this one? Sure, yeah. Um, so it's uh, kind of a uh, it's a concept that we typically call convergence. So, in other words, you can't just build a widget and solve all of the world's problems. If we could, engineers would run the world. Um, you, you have to build a widget that fulfills a function, and then people have to use it, and people have to uh, move it forward and, and spread it and disseminate it. Um, you know, it takes all sorts of people to make the world go around. We have to have people working on food security, water security, energy security, new ways of approaching all of those problems. And we have to have everyone who um, might have an opinion about it uh, and everyone who has a stake in having everything work have a say in formulating those ideas. So we have to have social scientists and political scientists and um, sociologists and people in communications involved. You know, climate touches everything and everything touches climate. So if you want to build a more sustainable world, you really have to have everyone at the table. And that's a real challenge. There are different academic cultures and, of course, different cultures between academia and the entire rest of the world. Um, and we need to get better at bridging those gaps. And for that purpose, we really need to have um, not just uh, disciplinary expertise, but multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, and transdisciplinary expertise. And we also have to reach out outside of the standard academic framing and work actively outside of academia with uh, partners both in the public realm and private realm, uh, NGOs, and government. Government, NGOs, businesses, I assume, have to be involved. Yep. Um, yeah. And so, like, you know, just as an example, like I am regularly talking with major corporations about their sustainability plans, and it's not confrontational whatsoever. It is very much we are interested in the same goal. How do we make it happen? Mm -hmm. Ben, do you have anything to add to that on the multidiscipline uh, need? Yeah, I, I, I was at a conference once and I heard a social scientist say that technology is a social construct mediated by tools so the tool is important 
but all of the the human interactions around the tools are what make it technology. I mean, think about the internet. Yeah, there, there's a lot of work that goes into how do we connect this computer to that computer, but that's not really the point. The internet allows us to talk to each other better and in more different ways. So what does that mean and what are the implications for our society? And I think that's where the interesting questions about technology come from. And you know, the same is true for any solution to climate change. It affects society. So society has to be involved in all of it. Can you see, Can this is for either one of you, but how does AI factor into this where you know we we've we've done shows on ai we might be doing another show next week on ai um it's it's really kind of a buzz but where does that factor into our ability to um to address these challenges that we're facing i love ai i, I think <laughs> it's a lot of fun like i i i use chat gpt all the time um ai is not going to solve all of our problems um uh, a great way of thinking about it is if it's something that a human could do in a couple of seconds or needs to do repeatedly, they shouldn't be doing it. You can have a machine do that. Um, AI can't do the thinking for us. Um, and I, I don't see that changing anytime soon, if ever. So um, I think AI is cool. I think AI is really helpful. Um, and I think the most effective way of using AI will be the sort of human in the loop where uh, we see it as more of a collaborative tool to help us do things better or faster. How does that uh, translate into the uh, challenges facing us with climate change? Can you, can one of you think of a use for AI now? It's, AI is probably being used a lot in this arena already, but what are some uses for AI in this climate change issue? I've got, oh yeah, Matt, go ahead. I, I, I'm sure Ben has other examples, but I can, give, I can give one example. So imagine you wanted to count every tree on the planet. Mm -hmm. So we can do that now, and it's in large part because First of all, of course, we have good satellites, and so we can take really high-resolution satellite imagery. But still, counting every tree, people couldn't do that. <laughs> you couldn't. People couldn't look at all of the satellite images and identify the boundary between each tree. Uh, but we can now do that with AI, machine learning, and, and kind of advanced image processing techniques. And once you can inventory every tree on the planet, you can monitor the health and well-being of every tree on the planet. And you can maybe identify what species are the trees. So you can study biodiversity. You can study the health of ecosystems. And you can now just start deploying that. And since people are more or less not involved in the process, you can now have a computer that's counting, looking at every satellite image and counting every tree. And uh, that's a fantastic use of that kind of technology. Okay. Thank you. Um, ben, did you have something you want to add? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I'm interested in exploring is uh, project management. So um, I have a friend who works on the 30-meter telescope. And they, the, with any large engineering project, you always have to figure out what are the risks, what are the consequences, how confident are we, and then come up with a series of tasks to test all of this to the series of tasks to test all the building of this this is the sort of thing that can literally take years and that's a telescope now if we're talking about climate change solutions that need to be deployed literally all over the world in very diverse areas with different aspects this is something that could take a whole lot of time and effort that quite frankly we don't have. So what if we didn't have to spend that time and effort and we could spend more time coming up with the solutions and deploying the solutions? So again, AI making our lives easier. All right. We have about 10 minutes to go. I've got a couple of questions that have come from our producer, but if you have a question, you can give us a call 812-855-0811. 
We're toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. One of the questions um, has to do with with money. Um, Matthew, you mentioned, I think the number was $600 billion? Is that it? Six, so it was yeah. a very yeah. large, very large number. Um, Depending on how you want to count it, but it's yeah, it's around six hundred billion flowing uh, through largely through Department of Energy. Mm-hmm. Are the, the those um, are those monies? Is that much money sustainable? You know, after because you know some of the funding sources they'll run out. We have other political uh, arguments, but you know, if we, it's like if we spend don't spend the money today, it seems like we're going to have to spend more money in five years or. 10 years. Um, I, I'm, I, I don't know if it's, a, this seems like a very um, vague question, but I guess I'm asking, is that, is that money going to continue to be available year after year? Do you think we have that, that kind of political will? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question. I mean, I guess I would partially just um, step back and realize that of that $600 billion, that's not all going into like research, right? So that's not going to, uh, fundamentally advance pure research problems. Most of that money is actually going to be going into the pockets of companies that are trying to roll out new technologies or into the pockets of consumers to help them uh, make purchases that will reduce their fossil fuel emissions. So in that sense, this kind of investment will actually pay for itself in the long term. The real issue is, as you say, the political will to think ahead a little bit. This is this is actually, you know, it doesn't matter what political persuasion you have or, you know, anything. Really, a lot of this just boils down to a very basic issue. Are you willing to plan for the future? And if you're willing to plan for the future, there's very little question about the solutions that need to be deployed. A lot of the problems that we have as a society is an unwillingness to even entertain the idea that we might plan for the future. And once you're over that hump, once you say, I care what happens in five years or 50 years and not just what happens in the next 12 months. Once you say that, there's a whole bunch of decisions that need to be made. And so from my perspective, yes, this kind of investment is sustainable, but we do have to get beyond thinking about one to two years ahead and say, hey, as a society and as a government, we need to be making you know, long-term plans. So this is a, a question that might be difficult. I don't want, don't want it to turn into a political question, but really a, a science question, because I, I'm curious. We have two wars going on right now, um, maybe more, but we have two that are in the news a lot, the one in you know, Ukraine, the one in, um, in Gaza, What's the effect on the environment when bombs are going off constantly in these countries? Um, I think it depends on where it's happening. So fires put um, microscopic particles into the atmosphere. They're called aerosols. Um, And... We know that aerosols on large scales cool the planet. I suspect that the amount that's been put in, that's being put up there is not really affecting it one way or the other. Um, killing people reduces consumption, but that's a pretty terrible way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's okay. we we kind of know the effects. I, I, I'm it's. It, it, war doesn't seem like a great way to fight climate change. Right. Yeah. Matthew, anything you want to add? Yeah. Um, I think one thing that we do know very well is that the um, invasion by Russia of Ukraine led to massive global uh, economic and uh, social changes. So. You know, the second that happens, once you threaten some aspects of energy security and also food security, because there's a a direct linkage between natural gas and uh, fertilizer, 
um, that propagated through the global economic system and, and through global food systems and increased inflation, increased food prices, and increased food insecurity globally. So, you know, the fascinating thing uh, about these kind of short-term events, which are, you know, horrible, uh, is that they are also interesting natural experiments that we can use to understand if you had a, a major event, whether it was a climate event or a war, what would how would the rest of the world respond to it? And you can learn a lot from that. And one of the things that you learn from that is that our global food, energy, and water uh, systems are all linked. And um, it bad things, when they happen in one place, propagate globally and have global impacts. And that has a direct sustainability and climate change implication. All right, I appreciate you trying to to answer that question. It was a it was a, a difficult one. Um, I, I have a couple of other areas I want to get into in our last five to five or six minutes here. Uh, one of them has to do with this is the age old issue when it comes to some big um, some some huge problem like climate change, and that is. The individual gets, gets down to the individual. You know, uh, what can the city of Bloomington do, or what can I and my neighborhood do to address this? And and you know, why should I? You know, why why should I care? How how much difference can I make? Can one individual make? This is not an original question. It's been asked for years, but I'm asking it again. I mean, what what uh, you know, what can the individual do to help fight this battle, Matthew? Yeah, so you know, individuals have a lot of power, um, and I think unfortunately, they've been encouraged to focus on um, interventions which are ineffective. So uh, you know, we now understand that part of the encouraging of of everyone to look at their carbon footprints was actually promulgated by the fossil fuel industry because it would make people think that this was all their fault and so therefore they wouldn't do anything. Um, so I think that what one has to do is really look at what are the real powerful levers that we can pull on that do have an impact. And those include we vote, we uh, make purchases, and we also invest in companies. And those are three major things that any individual can do that have a big impact. And sometimes uh, it has such a big impact that people try and discourage people from using that power by discouraging us from making good voting choices, discouraging us from uh, making choices on what we buy based on these kinds of concerns and also discouraging us from exercising our power when buying and selling stocks or making other forms of investment decisions. So I think it's very important to understand we have a lot of power in those areas. And when people discourage us from exercising it, it's for a reason. All right, Ben. I, I love that answer. And I also want to talk about low hanging fruit because there's so much of it out there. So um, a friend of mine was telling me that his university did a simple analysis um, and they just they came up with if we replace all of our light bulbs with LED lights on campus, it'll pay for itself within a year. They didn't care about climate change in that decision. They, that was just about cost. Um, but it certainly helps climate change because it reduces their electric bill. So, and th there are so many examples of that out there. So many studies that have been done on that sort of thing out there. So, um, I mean, I, I'm very wary of saying, well, if people just had more information, they would make better decisions because that's not true. But in some cases it is. Right. All right. Last question. This is, has to do with, we have about three minutes to go. So, has to do with with policy decisions. You know, you uh, Matthew, you mentioned people can vote. What kinds of when they go vote? What kinds of public policy? And let's 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 put this in the in a, at a state level. What kind of public policies would you like to see? Oh, we could, it could be a state or the national level. What kind of public policies would you like to see pushed? What should be our highest priority when it comes to public policies and climate change? Matthew, you want well, to go first? Yeah. 
Sure. I, from my perspective, uh, as I indicated earlier, I would just start off with what kind of future do you as an individual want? So do you want you and your children and your grandchildren to have good economic opportunities, adequate supplies of clean drinking water, clean air, lots of food, the ability to enjoy your life? And if you just work your way back from that and think about what is necessary to make that happen and ensure that it happens 20 years from now and 50 years from now. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of the political questions kind of answer themselves just by thinking concretely about the future. And part of what you see with the rise of, of what might be thought of as kind of doomist culture that we're all doomed and really there's no point, um, even though many of the people who might be feeling that way might be well-intentioned and want to do something about the environment, they're actually being encouraged by the rise of doomer culture to not think about the future. And that's exactly the opposite of what we need. What we need is for people to still be invested in the future. And what decisions they make based on that is not up to me. That's up to them. So I, I don't have any particular political advice. But I would say think about the future. Okay. Ben, last minute. Yeah, um, I would say that there's this perception of hyper-partisanship and that Americans are divided like never before. I think there are a lot of issues that people can agree upon. They might not agree upon why, but they agree upon it. So renewable energy is a great example. If you want to fight climate change by rolling out more renewable energy, great. If you want to avoid the massive power outages that we saw in Texas from that uh, cold snap that they had a while ago, energy security, great. There are lots of ways to get at an answer that makes everybody happy. And I'd like to see that. All right. We are out of time. Thank you both for the conversation today. I've been talking with Matthew Huber from Purdue University and Ben Kravitz from Indiana University. I want to thank our engineer, Mike Pashkash, our producer, Nathan Moore. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. <laughs>